Chapter twenty five of Eighty Years and More Reminiscences, eighteen fifteen to eighteen ninety seven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Bellwest. Eighty Years and More Reminiscences, eighteen fifteen to eighteen ninety seven by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter 25. The International Council of Women Pursuant to the idea of the feasibility and need of an International Council of Women, mentioned in a preceding chapter, it was decided to celebrate the fourth decade of the women's suffrage movement in the United States by calling together such a council. At its 19th annual convention, held in January 1887, the National Woman Suffrage Association resolved to assume the entire responsibility of holding a council, and to extend an invitation for that purpose to all associations of women in the trades, professions, and reforms, as well as those advocating political rights. Early in June 1887, a call was issued for such a council to convene under the auspices of the National Woman Suffrage Association at Washington, D.C., on March 25, 1888. The grand assemblage of women coming from all the countries of the civilized globe proved that the call for such a council was opportune, while the order and dignity of the proceedings proved the women worthy the occasion. No one doubts now the wisdom of that initiative step, nor the added power women have gained over popular thought through the International Council. As the proceedings of the convention were fully and graphically reported in the Women's Tribune at that time, and as its reports were afterwards published in book form, revised and corrected by Miss Anthony, Miss Foster, and myself, I will merely say that our most sanguine expectations as to its success were more than realized. The large theater was crowded for an entire week, and hosts of able women spoke, as if specially inspired, on all the vital questions of the hour. Although the council was called and conducted by the Suffrage Association, yet various other societies were represented. Miss Anthony was the financier of the occasion and raised $12,000 for the purpose, which enabled her to pay all the expenses of the delegates in Washington and for printing the report in book form. As soon as I reached Washington, Miss Anthony ordered me to remain conscientiously in my own apartment and to prepare a speech for delivery before the committees of the Senate and House and another as president for the opening of the council. However, as Miss Bofford placed her carriage at our service, I was permitted to drive an hour or two every day about that magnificent city. One of the best speeches at the council was made by Helen H. Gardiner. It was a criticism of Dr. Hammond's position in regard to the inferior size and quality of woman's brain. As the doctor had never had the opportunity of examining the brains of the most distinguished women, and probably those only of paupers and criminals, she felt he had no data on which to base his conclusions. Moreover, she had the written opinion of several leading physicians that it was quite impossible to distinguish the male from the female brain. The hearing at the Capitol after the meeting of the Council was very interesting, as all the foreign delegates were invited to speak each in the language of her own country. To address their alleged representatives in the halls of legislation was a privilege they had never enjoyed at home. 
it is very remarkable that english women have never made the demand for a hearing in the house of commons nor even for a decent place to sit where they can hear the debates and see the fine proportions of the representatives the delegates had several brilliant receptions at the riggs house and at the houses of senator stanford of california and senator palmer of michigan miss anthony and i spent two months in washington that winter one of the great pleasures of our annual conventions was the reunion of our friends at the riggs house where we enjoyed the boundless hospitality of mr and mrs spofford the month of june i spent in new york city where i attended several of colonel robert g ingersoll's receptions and saw the great orator and iconoclast at his own fireside surrounded by his admirers and heard his beautiful daughters sing which gave all who listened great pleasure as they have remarkably fine voices one has since married and is now pouring out her richest melodies in the opera of lullaby in her own nursery in the fall of eighteen eighty eight as ohio was about to hold a constitutional convention at the request of the suffrage association i wrote an appeal to the women of the state to demand their right to vote for delegates to such convention mrs southworth had five thousand copies of my appeal published and distributed at the exposition in columbus if ten righteous men could save sodom all the brilliant women i met in cleveland should have saved ohio from masculine domination the winter of eighteen eighty eight to eighty nine i was to spend with my daughter in omaha i reached there in time to witness the celebration of the completion of the first bridge between that city and council bluffs there was a grand procession in which all the industries of both towns were represented and which occupied six hours in passing we had a desirable position for reviewing the pageant and very pleasant company to interpret the mottoes symbols and banners the bridge practically brings the towns together as electric streetcars now run from one to the other in ten minutes here for the first time i saw the cable cars running uphill and down without any visible means of locomotion as the company ran in open car all winter i took my daily ride of nine miles in it for fifteen cents my son daniel who escorted me always sat inside the car while i remained on an outside seat he was greatly amused with the remarks he heard about that queer old lady that always rode outside in all kinds of wintry weather one day someone remarked loud enough for all to hear it is evident that woman does not know enough to come in when it rains bless me said the conductor who knew me that woman knows as much as the queen of england too much to come in here by a hot stove how little we understand the comparative position of those whom we often criticize there i sat enjoying the bracing air the pure fresh breezes indifferent to the fate of an old cloak and hood that had crossed the atlantic and been saturated with salt water many times pitying the women inside breathing air laden with microbes that dozens of people had been throwing off from time to time sacrificing themselves to their stylish bonnets cloaks and dresses suffering with the heat of the red-hot stove and yet they in turn pitying me 
My seventy-third birthday I spent with my son, Garrett Smith Stanton, on his farm near Portsmouth, Iowa. As we had not met in several years, it took us a long time in the network of life to pick up all the stitches that had dropped since we parted. I amused myself darning stockings and drawing plans for an addition to his house. But in the spring my son and his wife came to the conclusion that they had had enough of the solitude of farm life and turned their faces eastward. Soon after my return to Omaha, the editor of the Women's Tribune, Mrs. Clara B. Colby, called and lunched with us one day. She announced the coming state convention, at which I was expected to make the best speech of my life. She had all the arrangements to make, and invited me to drive round with her, in order that she might talk by the way. She engaged the opera house, made arrangements at the Paxton House for a reception, called on all her faithful coadjutors to arouse enthusiasm in the work, and climbed up to the sanctums of the editors, Democratic and Republican alike, asking them to advertise the convention and to say a kind word for our oppressed class in our struggle for emancipation. They all promised favorable notices and comments, and they kept their promises. Mrs. Colby, being president of the Nebraska Suffrage Association, opened the meeting with an able speech and presided throughout with tact and dignity. I came very near meeting with an unfortunate experience at this convention. The lady who escorted me in her carriage to the opera house carried the manuscript of my speech, which I did not miss until it was nearly time to speak when I told the lady who sat by my side that our friend had forgotten to give me my manuscript. She went at once to her and asked for it. She remembered taking it, but what she had done with it she did not know. It was suggested that she might have dropped it in alighting from the carriage, and lo, they found it lying in the gutter. As the ground was frozen hard, it was not even soiled. When I learned of my narrow escape, I trembled, for I had not prepared any train of thought for extemporaneous use. I should have been obliged to talk when my turn came, and, if inspired by the audience or the good angels, might have done well, or might have failed utterly. The moral of this episode is, hold on to your manuscript. Owing to the illness of my son-in-law, Frank E. Lawrence, he and my daughter went to California to see if the balmy air of San Diego would restore his health. And so we gave up housekeeping in Omaha, and on April twentieth, 1889, in company with my eldest son, I returned east and spent the summer at Hempstead, Long Island, with my son Garrett and his wife. We found Hampstead a quiet old Dutch town, undisturbed by progressive ideas. Here I made the acquaintance of Chauncey C. Parsons and wife, formerly of Boston, who were liberal in their ideas on most questions. Mrs. Parsons and I attended one of the Seidel Club meetings at Coney Island, where Seidel was then giving some popular concerts. The club was composed of two hundred women, to whom I spoke for an hour in the dining room of the hotel. With the magnificent ocean views, the grand concerts, and the beautiful women, I passed two very charming days by the seaside. My son Henry had given me a phaeton, low and easy as a cradle, and I enjoyed many drives about Long Island. We went to Bryant's house on the north side several times, 
and in imagination i saw the old poet in the various shady nooks inditing his lines of love and praise of nature in all her varying moods walking along the many-coloured rustling leaves in the dark days of november i could easily enter into his thought as he penned these lines the melancholy days are come the saddest of the year of wailing winds and naked woods and meadows brown and sear heaped in the hollows of the grove the autumn leaves lie dead they rustle to the eddying gust and to the rabbit's tread in september eighteen eighty nine my daughter mrs stanton lawrence came east to attend a school of physical culture and my other daughter mrs stanton blanche came from england to enjoy one of our bracing winters unfortunately we had rain instead of snow and fogs instead of frost however we had a pleasant reunion at hempstead after a few days in and about new york visiting friends we went to geneva and spent several weeks in the home of my cousin the daughter of garrett smith she and i have been most faithful devoted friends all our lives and regular correspondents for more than fifty years in the family circle we are oft-times referred to as julius and johnson these euphonious names originated in this way when the christie minstrels first appeared we went one evening to hear them on returning home we amused our seniors with as they said a capital rehearsal the wit and philosopher of the occasion were called respectively julius and johnson so we took their parts and reproduced all the bright humorous remarks they made the next morning as we appeared at the breakfast table cousin jared smith in his deep rich voice said good morning julius and johnson and he kept it up the few days we were in albany together <sighs> one after another our relatives adopted the pseudonyms and mrs miller has been julius and i johnson ever since from geneva we went to buffalo but as i had a bad cold and a general feeling of depression i decided to go to the dansville sanatorium and see what doctors james and kate jackson could do for me i was there six weeks and tried all the rubbings and pinchings steamings the swedish movements of the arms hands legs feet dieting massage electricity and though I succeeded in throwing off only five pounds of flesh, yet I felt like a new being. It is a charming place to be in. The home is pleasantly situated and the scenery very fine. The physicians are all genial, and a cheerful atmosphere pervades the whole establishment. As Christmas was at hand, the women were all half crazy about presents and while good doctors james and kate were doing all in their power to cure the nervous affections of their patients they would thwart the treatment by sitting in the parlor with the thermometer at seventy-two degrees embroidering all kinds of fancy patterns some on muslin some on satin and some with colored worsteds on canvas inhaling the poisonous dyes straining the optic nerve counting threads and stitches hour after hour until utterly exhausted i spoke to one poor victim of the fallacy of christmas presents and of her injuring her health in such useless employment 
"'What can I do?' she replied. "'I must make presents, and cannot afford to buy them.' "'Do you think,' said I, "'any of your friends would enjoy a present you made at the risk of your health?' "'I do not think there is any must in the manner. "'I never feel that I must give presents, and never want any, "'especially from those who make some sacrifice to give them.' Oh, this whole custom of presents at Christmas, New Year's, and at weddings has come to be a bore, a piece of hypocrisy leading to no end of unhappiness. I do not know a more pitiful sight than to see a woman tatting, knitting, embroidering, working cats on the toe of some slipper or tulips on an apron. Oh, the amount of nervous force that is expended in this way is enough to make angels weep. The necessary stitches to be taken in every household are quite enough without adding fancy work. From Dansville, my daughters and I went to Washington to celebrate the 70th birthday of Miss Anthony, who has always been to them as a second mother. Mrs. Blatch made a speech at the celebration, and Mrs. Lawrence gave a recitation. First came a grand supper at the Riggs house. The dining room was beautifully decorated. In fact, Mr. and Mrs. Spofford spared no pains to make the occasion one long to be remembered. May Wright Sewell was the mistress of ceremonies. She read the toasts and called on the different speakers. Phoebe Cousins, Reverend Ann Shaw, Isabella Beecher Hooker, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Clara B. Colby, Senator Blair of New Hampshire, and many others responded. I am ashamed to say that we kept up the festivities till after two o'clock. Miss Anthony, dressed in dark velvet and point lace, spoke at the close with great pathos. Those of us who were there will not soon forget February 15, 1890. After speaking before the committees of the Senate and House, I gave the opening address at the annual convention. Mrs. Stanton Blatch spoke a few minutes on the suffrage movement in England, after which we hurried off to New York and went on board the Aller, one of the North German Lloyd steamers bound for Southampton. At the ship we found Captain Milanowski and his wife and two of my sons waiting our arrival. As we had eighteen pieces of baggage, it took Mrs. Blatch some time to review them. My phaeton, which we decided to take, filled six boxes. An easy carriage for two persons is not common in England. The dog carts prevail, the most uncomfortable vehicles one can possibly use. Why some of our Americans drive in these uncomfortable carts is a question. I think it is because they are so English. The only reason the English use them is because they are cheap. The tax on two wheels is one-half what it is on four, and in England all carriages are taxed. Before we Americans adopt fashions because they are English, we had better find out the raison d'etre for their existence. We had a very pleasant, smooth voyage, unusually so for blustering February and March. As I dislike close staterooms, I remained in the ladies' saloon night and day, sleeping on a sofa. After a passage of eleven days, we landed at Southampton, March 2, 1890. It was a beautiful moonlit night, and we had a pleasant ride on the little tug to the wharf. 
we reached Bassingstoke at eleven o'clock, found the family well, and all things in order. End of chapter 25